When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everybody, CJ here, and welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. Yes, it is I, your humble hazardous history helmsman, your guerrilla scholar warrior and renaissance man in this new dark age in which we find ourselves. And I'm taking a little bit of a break, a little bit of a divergence from working on for the past several weeks really intensely the next Woodrow Wilson episode which, if I'm not mistaken, is going to be DHP Villains Woodrow Wilson Part 10. I believe I'm at Part 10 next. And of course, you may have heard me mention this various places, this next episode that I've already recorded, I think about 90 minutes worth of audio for, but still have a ways to go. This episode I'm talking about, not the one you're listening to, but the one I'm still working on that's huge, is going to be the episode dealing with Wilson and the issue of race in a deep dive sort of way. And as happens more often than not when I'm working on an episode like that, the more I work on it, the longer it seems to get. And as I'm simultaneously recording segments, composing notes, and still doing additional reading and research, I keep digging up new things and making new connections, and the episode just sort of organically grows. But just to give you a little sneak preview... One of the things I discovered in doing some deep reading specifically related to Wilson and race is in regard to the famous story about him screening the film Birth of a Nation in the White House. And there's a bit more complexity to that story in a variety of ways than most people realize. And just one of the details I've dug up is that Woodrow Wilson had actually been friends for years, not super close friends, but friends, with Thomas Dixon Jr., who, if you don't know, Thomas Dixon Jr. is the ultra-racist KKK apologist who wrote the novel The Klansman that was then in turn the basis for the film Birth of a Nation. So Wilson had been friends with him for many years, since long before Dixon wrote his novel. In fact, the two had crossed paths while Wilson was in graduate school, believe it or not. So, just a little bit of a tantalizing preview of the type of stuff that you're going to hear about in that gigantic Wilson and Race episode that I'm still working on. But I'm getting kind of cabin fevered and driven out of my mind working on that episode so intensely in recent days and weeks that I decided to take a break and talk a bit about something that's been on my mind for quite a while, that I think is a very interesting political school of thought, and that I do think is oftentimes overlooked 
in our time and forgotten, at least in a direct sense, but that I think has potentially much to teach us, and that is what's known as classical republicanism, which is not to be confused with modern democracy or even modern democratic republics. It's a different thing. But before I get into that, I do just want to let you all know that I have scheduled the first DHP live stream for just a couple of days from when I'm recording this little episode right now, and that is Thursday, October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. I'm going to do just sort of a random fireside chat talking about what I'm working on and those sorts of things. And that's going to be for people who donated $100 or more to my Indiegogo campaign or to people who support the show via Patreon or Subscribestar at $15 a month or more. And by the way, if you chipped into the Indiegogo campaign, I am contacting you for your perks and things via whatever email address you contributed under to the Indiegogo campaign. So when I send a link to a live stream, or if you're someone who donated generously enough that I'm making you a custom episode or even mini series, that's how I'm communicating with you. So please make sure if you're somebody who contributed to the Indiegogo campaign that you keep an eye on whatever email it was that you used when you contributed. In addition to that, looking ahead, I've got a number of things in the works, including... Aside from that big episode I've already mentioned about Wilson and race, I've got a couple of very interesting interviews coming up over the next few weeks that I'm looking forward to, people I'm interviewing uh, for DHP episodes. And in addition to that, I'm going to be doing a Halloween special, as I often do, and this one's going to be getting back kind of a throwback to the ones I did several years ago in a row, you know, I want to say like 2016, 17, maybe 18, thereabouts, where I read a bunch of Halloween and spooky themed kind of stories and poems that are old enough to be in the public domain so I don't have to worry about any copyright issues. And I'm planning on doing what I used to do back when I did those type of Halloween episodes, which is to do a part one with, you know, a handful of stories and poems that'll be for everybody, whether you're a supporter or not. And then part two will be some more stories and poems just for people who support the show via Patreon or Subscribestar. So keep an eye out for that, maybe next week, something like that, you know, the week leading up to Halloween. And aside from that, in the relatively near future, I'm also working on part two of my Haze Codes episode. And this is going to be the one where I get a little bit creative and give my interpretation of what we have seen as far as the thought policing of Hollywood films and big budget TV productions over the past, I don't know, six or seven years. Okay, so all of that said, let's dig into our topic for today, which is classical republicanism. And I'm calling this episode Two Cheers for Classical Republicanism, because I think there's a lot of good to it, and there's a lot to recommend it, and I think there's a lot we can learn from even today. 
but I'm not necessarily wholeheartedly endorsing all of the political ideology of classical republicanism or, you know, its historical practice either. So, from the opening paragraph for the Wikipedia page for classical republicanism, and yes, I know Wikipedia is no longer what it used to be in terms of objectivity and reliability and, you know, being kind of a leaderless, ground-up sort of a thing, but nonetheless, it's still often pretty reliable and accurate when you're talking about, like, basic definitions of terms, especially if they're terms that are not, you know, directly relevant to modern-day political controversies. So, just to give you the bird's eye view, it says, Classical Republicanism, also known as Civic Republicanism or Civic Humanism, is a form of Republicanism developed in the Renaissance, inspired by the governmental forms and writings of classical antiquity, especially such classical writers as Aristotle, Polybius, and Cicero. Classical Republicanism is built around concepts such as civil society, civic virtue, and mixed government. So that's okay as a very kind of big picture, vague, a little bit vague sort of an introduction, but there's a lot of detail in both theory and practice that it leaves out. And I think that definition is a little bit, I don't know, incorrect or incomplete or maybe even a little bit misleading because it specifically identifies it only with the Renaissance when in fact both the theory and practice of what I would consider classical republicanism broadly defined extends well back before the Renaissance and extends forward beyond it as well. And there are certainly some of what I would consider very important and central aspects of classical republicanism that were not included in that Wikipedia opening paragraph. Although, to be fair, I think some of what else I'm going to cover is actually mentioned at least to some degree later on in the Wikipedia page for classical republicanism. So, I would say in terms of timelines, the earliest instances of something resembling what eventually would become classical republicanism can be found in ancient Greece in kind of the golden age of the Greek polis. So, you know, maybe 500s, 400s BC, something like that. Now, no Greek polis, and all of the Greek uh, polises or poles, or I think the plural is actually poles, if I remember right. All of the Greek poles, you know, had different variations on government. And in addition to that, even one specific Greek polis might have a different form of government over the course of, you know, several centuries. Even Athens, right, famous as the home and birthplace of early democracy, was a tyranny at various points in its history, like an outright tyranny, not a tyranny of the majority sort of a thing. So, a Greek polis is a city-state, meaning it's a city, and then usually some of the immediate countryside and farmland around it, and it is a sovereign, self-governing political authority, but very compact. And I mean compact in both size and numbers of people. So the Greeks started to develop some aspects of classical republicanism just sort of in practice. As they evolved the city-state or polis as a form of government, and as they evolved kind of concurrently with it, the hoplite citizen militia as their defense force. And I'll try to remember to link in the show notes to this episode to an episode I did a long, long time ago about the Eastern way of war 
and the Western way of war, because I think in that episode, I talked a little bit about the evolution of the Greek hoplite citizen-soldier form of military. So the ancient Greeks started to develop a lot of the, the earliest inklings of what would eventually evolve into classical republicanism, first in practice, as they just you know sort of figured out how they were going to organize their various city-states. And by the way, I've long thought, as someone who identifies as an anarchist, but also as somebody who is a pragmatist in the short term and in practice, I've long thought that if you're going to have some sort of a political authority, that something like a city-state is probably the best option. Because for a variety of reasons, it is the most kind of human scale and humane. And I don't mean that in the sense that like it's always nice to you, but humane in the sense of it's not dehumanizing or I'm trying to find the exact way to, to put this. Maybe that the Greek polis is the most optimally sized type of political authority to at least increase your odds of something like civic virtue actually being a real thing. Because I think most people are capable of having genuine sentimental attachment to and genuine sense of, of loyalty to and of not wanting to rip off and exploit their immediate vicinity and neighbors and family members and so forth. It's not to say that no bad actors will ever emerge in a system like that and do bad things and rip off the general public for their own benefit, but that when you're talking about something like a city-state, which maybe has only 50,000 or 100,000 residents and only a relatively small fraction of that are actual full citizens, where people often genuinely do know each other and know each other's character, that it's harder for bad actors to at least as frequently and as successfully and on such a large scale to exploit a political system like that to the degree that they can, say, in like a modern, large, democratic republic. So the Greeks started evolving the basis of classical republicanism just sort of in practice, and then eventually some of the Greek philosophers started to write and speak about some of it on a more kind of political science-y, theoretical level. So here we're talking about people like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. And they came at it in various ways, and they certainly didn't all have the same take on this. And then from there, you next see what would eventually become classical republicanism popping up with the Romans. And again, you have it initially evolving just as a practical matter of political organization. But then eventually you have philosophers and perhaps what in modern times would be called political scientists who are trying to figure out like what makes this system work, what seems to make this system better than alternatives that we've seen in history. And so, you know, in the early days of the Roman Republic, especially when Rome was still a relatively compact thing, when it was initially just basically a polis and then eventually it kind of had control of central Italy thereabouts is when you see Rome behaving the most like a classical Republican kind of a thing. And the larger Rome got, the more that started to break down. And then eventually you reached a point where the Republic was just a facade, really, just like a shell of its former self. And eventually it collapsed into civil war, actually multiple times, until eventually it was turned into a centralized monarchy with an emperor. 
And by the way, a common thing that you see with republics in the classical sense of the word, if they are successful, is that they often are victims of their success. What I mean by that is a classical republic works. You know, it's never perfect, but it works best when it's relatively compact in both geography and population, where citizenship is relatively limited, and when citizenship is mostly, though not exclusively, what you might think of as, for lack of a better term, uh, middle class. And eventually you will get Roman thinkers writing about classical republicanism, as it would eventually be known. They didn't use that term back then. But writing about it both in kind of a theoretical sense and in an historical sense, trying to analyze particularly the kind of heyday of the Roman Republic. And foremost among them would probably be people like Cicero and Polybius, although there were others as well. And it seems to me like most of the, perhaps in some sense, like a lot of the uh, Greek thinkers, a lot of times people start to think the most about classical republicanism when it's already kind of gone, or at least on the way out in their society. So it's kind of interesting, like people who lived during the heyday of the Roman Republic or during the heyday of when some of the Greek city-states were something along the lines of a classical republic. They tend not to think about it in theory or whatever. They're too busy just kind of doing it. And then as the republic starts to slip away and degenerate and then eventually is gone and is just, you know, maybe some of the terminology is still around, but in practice it's no longer something like a classical republic, that's when you'll have intellectuals and very often they're looking back and going, man, if only we could get back to the better days of when people were these virtuous citizens. Then, of course, obviously, the Roman Empire turns into an authoritarian dictatorship that is in most ways completely removed from the original ideas of it as a republic. And it does what empires usually do, which is overextend itself, destroy its own economy, degenerate, lose all of the things that made it strong and powerful to begin with, and collapse. And then where a lot of intellectuals, including whoever wrote the Wikipedia page that I quoted from before, where a lot of intellectuals really kind of see classical republicanism coming in as like a full-fledged political ideology is in Renaissance Italy. And there's a variety of Renaissance Italian intellectuals who looked back to ancient Greece and Rome and tried to learn lessons from them and to revive the republican ideas of back then. And foremost among them is Machiavelli. Niccolo Machiavelli, most famous for writing The Prince, but actually... If you really want to understand Machiavelli, I would say probably the most important book is The Discourses, or the full title, Discourses on Livy, who was another uh, Roman author who wrote about the history of the Roman Republic and that sort of stuff. And then also an often overlooked book by Machiavelli that's very interesting and has a lot of classical republicanist ideas in it is Machiavelli's The Art of War. Not to be confused with Sun Tzu's Art of War or any of the other, you know, number of Art of War written by other people over the centuries. And so Machiavelli is looking to the Greek and Roman past, especially the Roman past, and then also trying to figure out how he can revive some of those ideas in Renaissance Italy, in places like Florence, which during the Renaissance, at least at some points in time, had some elements of classical republicanism at work in their political system. I would also argue that kind of late medieval into early modern Switzerland 
also, and I don't know if there were Swiss leaders who really like read the Greeks and Romans and Machiavelli, or if the Swiss just sort of evolved it out of their own practice, but a lot of elements of classical republicanism you can see at work in kind of early modern Switzerland. Please allow myself to interrupt myself. This is CJ with a special message for all you awesome listeners of the DHP. My work here is primarily funded through the generosity and patronage of awesome individuals like you. If you sign up to support this show via Patreon or Subscribestar, not only do you help me to keep doing this work and do more of it in the future, but you also get various benefits depending on your contribution level. Benefits to include access to the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. In addition to that, again, depending on your level of support, you may also have access to special bonus episodes available nowhere else. You may be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. Access to bi-monthly or even monthly live streams with me access to Dangerous History Lyceum lectures by me, as well as potentially, if you sign up at the Grandmaster Scholar Warrior level, membership in the monthly DHP online book club. So I hope you'll consider signing up to support my work if you're not already, and if you are, perhaps you'll consider upping your level of support to access more benefits. Links to Patreon and Subscribestar for the DHP will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and now let's get back to the show. You then see a lot of these ideas revived in 17th and early 18th century Britain, particularly in the period of the English Civil War and the overthrow of the monarchy and the so called interregnum, where for a while, England didn't have a monarch. And there were prominent classical Republican intellectuals that were trying to bring some of these ideas from ancient Greece and Rome by way of Machiavelli and other Renaissance Italians into the British system with, you know, very mixed success. But I'll say there were elements of things that were at least analogous to classical Republicanism that you can find even in medieval and early modern England that I think the Anglo-Saxons evolved through a combination of just sort of practice and then maybe some of the influence of the Romans, who had ruled England before the Anglo-Saxons moved in. And then at least some of the prominent intellectuals of the so-called Enlightenment were fans of classical republicanism, at least to some degree. In particular, Montesquieu, who, by the way, I've got my first DHP book club discussion scheduled for October 25th. That's a Tuesday, and that'll be at 7.30 p.m. And the book that we're discussing is Montesquieu's book about the causes of the greatness and decline of the Romans. I forget the exact title. It's something like that. I don't have my copy handy to look at. And there's definitely a lot of classical Republican ideas worked into that book. You also see some classical Republican ideas in Jean-Jacques Rousseau, although he takes them off into a lot of directions that Montesquieu would not, and that even a lot of prior classical Republicans would not have. And then, kind of ironically, and I would say unfortunately, a lot of Rousseau's kind of repurposed 
versions of classical republicanism then get adopted by the Jacobins during the French Revolution. And unfortunately, they take a lot of the rhetoric and kind of emotion of classical republicanism, but then they blow it all out of proportion and apply it to something that it is not appropriate for. They apply some of their ideas of classical republicanism to something as huge in geography and population as early modern France, 18th century France. And of course, they mix it with all sorts of ideology that was not part of the original classical Republican ideology that kind of goes from the Greeks and Romans through the Renaissance thinkers like Machiavelli and into the 17th and 18th century English classical Republicans. And so to me, the Jacobins during the French Revolution are kind of like when the terminology of republic and republicanism and republican gets I would argue, perverted and repurposed away from what it had meant for like the prior 2,000 years in what eventually gets known as classical republicanism. And it's kind of interesting how when people steal and pervert and repurpose your word, then you have to put classical or classic or whatever in front of it to refer to the original meaning, right? This is what happened to the word liberal and liberalism. When it got hijacked by progressives to mean something different, suddenly people who still believed in the original meaning of the word liberal have to call themselves classical liberal. So to me, Jacobin France is like the beginning of modern republicanism. However, there's another contemporary place where you can see at least some aspects of classical republican theory and practice popping up, and that's in colonial and revolutionary America and into the early years of the Republic. And for sure, classical Republicanism was one significant ingredient of the ideology of the American Revolution. It's by no means the only one. There's lots of other important ingredients as well. But it is one, and it's one that's often overlooked. But there's a very interesting book that I read like 18 years ago when I was in graduate school. It's huge and dense. It's not an easy read. And it really helps if you've got some prior knowledge in some of the history and political philosophy the book deals with. But it is a huge book by an historian who, I don't know if he's still alive or not, but he was originally from New Zealand, uh, named J.G.A. Pocock. And the book is called The Machiavellian Moment. And it traces a lot of classical Republican ideas through the Renaissance thinkers like Machiavelli and some others who are a little bit less famous, and then forward from there into like 17th century England, and then from there across the Atlantic to kind of the American Revolution and founding. So anyway, that's kind of a bird's eye timeline of classical Republicanism. And again, by the late 18th, early 19th century, It is being eclipsed by modern republicanism or modern democracy, as Wilson will eventually call it. But what are some key aspects of classical republicanism? And I think you'll see how much it differs from modern democracy or modern republics. So in my mind, one of the key aspects of classical republicanism is a belief that it's good to have some sort of a, what they would call a mixed or a balanced constitution. So going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, they said there are really kind of three forms of government. There's rule by the one, which is often called monarchy, or when it's being oppressive, 
dictatorship. And the best distinction I ever heard, and I forget where, it might have been in some of Montesquieu's writings, or maybe it was somewhere else, I forget. But one of the best kind of delineations I've ever read between a monarchy and a dictatorship is that in a monarchy, there still is some sort of a rule of law, meaning the king still has to enforce the laws as, as they exist and still is potentially subject to them. So in other words, in a monarchy, the king has a lot of power, but can't literally do whatever the hell he wants. Whereas in a dictatorship or a tyranny, as they would have often called it in ancient Greece, a tyranny, the tyrant can pretty much do whatever. So there's government of the one, then there's government of the few, which sometimes is referred to as aristocracy, sometimes referred to as oligarchy. I think it was Aristotle who differentiated. Aristotle said there's kind of like a a good version and a bad or corrupt version of each of these three forms of government. So if I remember right, I think he said that the good version of government by the few is aristocracy. And I don't think he meant in that case government by purely hereditary aristocrats, I think he meant the original meaning of the word, which is government by the best. Which obviously you can then get into the weeds about defining what exactly that means. And then again, going from memory here, I need to reread a bunch of this stuff that I haven't read in like 15, 18, 20 years. But I think Aristotle said that the kind of corrupt version of government by the few is oligarchy, and it's basically just, you know, whoever has the most money, and it's people just acting in their self-interest. And then there's government by the many, which in Aristotle, I think he said democracy was actually the corrupt version of this, and that the not corrupt version of government by the many, I believe Aristotle called polity. Now, classical Republican thinkers or sort of proto or pre-classical Republican thinkers like Aristotle, they tended to think that every form, whether it's government by one, government by few, or government by many, every one of those has potential problems, defects, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, whatever. And so the idea of a mixed or balanced constitution is that you don't just have one of those and that's it, that you have your government split into kind of different pieces and that you want to have, you know, part of it that is kind of government ultimately by one person, at least for one of the institutions or branches as they would later be called. And then another section that is, you know, government by the few, and then another section or institution that is government by the many, and that there's sort of checks and balances. Again, they wouldn't have used this term yet in ancient times, but that's kind of what they're getting at. And so actually an early example of this in some ways is ancient Sparta, which you could argue was more of a balanced or mixed constitution than ancient Athens. But in ancient Sparta, you had kings, but then you also had an assembly of kind of like elite elders and then an assembly of like all the adult citizens. And I'm blanking out. This is an episode, by the way, I'm doing with very minimal notes, just so you know. I do intend to return to classical republicanism with more detail and more, you know, notes and whatever like that and quotes and things. But um, I'm doing this one somewhat on the fly with just a few bullet points. So off the top of my head right now, I'm blanking on the names of the different uh, Spartan kind of legislative houses, so to speak. 
but there was one that was more elite and there was one that was like, you know, all or at least most adult male citizens. So they sort of had a a mixed constitution in a way. Now there's all kinds of other, you know, horrifying aspects of the Spartan constitution and, you know, the helot slavery, which is a nightmare. But just in terms of the way that they balanced out the different parts of their government, they had an early version of a mixed or balanced constitution. So the idea is if you have your government kind of split into different parts, part of which is by the one, part of which is by the few, part of which is by the many, that the different strengths and weaknesses of each of these approaches to government balances each other out. And if you're thinking, that kind of sounds like the original idea for the American Constitution, you're on the right track, because of course a big influence on that was Montesquieu's writings. And Montesquieu, I wouldn't call him a pure classical Republican, but he definitely admired aspects of it and liked this idea of mixed government and checks and balances. Another defining aspect of a classical republic is that it is geographically and demographically fairly small. It's something like a city-state, or maybe a little bit bigger than that, but not huge. It's not even as big as something like Italy. It's as big as just like, you know, a little chunk of Italy. When Aristotle was talking about the proper size of things in, I think it was the politics, maybe it was one of his other works. But he talks about this term human scale, and he says, look, everything has a proper size that's optimal. And so I don't remember if he used this example or if one of my teachers did, but basically, you know, if you made a hammer that was like the size of your pinky fingernail, that would be a terrible hammer because it's way too small. On the other hand, if you made a hammer that was like nine feet tall and weighed several tons, that would also be a terrible hammer because it's way too big. And so the thinking is, there's some sort of optimal size range that makes something the right size range for human beings to use it optimally. And so to a guy like Aristotle, he would say the same thing is true with a state. That if a state is way too small, that's a problem. If a state is way too big, that's a problem. There's some sort of optimal size range that's as good as you're going to get it. And so to Aristotle, he said that a political unit is way too big if you can't walk across it in a single day. So think about that. A state that you can't walk across in one day is way out of scale, Aristotle thought. A classical republic also typically has a relatively large middle class, at least by the standards of whatever historical period we're talking about. That's not to say there aren't, you know, rich people and poor people as well, but that there tends to be a pretty large cluster near the middle. So yeah, in ancient Athens or in early Republican Rome, yes, there were elites who were much wealthier than most people. And they pretty much always had more political influence than everybody else. But, and yes, there were also poor people, and of course in these societies there were slaves, but the bulk of the citizenry were kind of clustered towards the middle of the income classes of that time and place. Now, in this mixed constitution, there are elements that are fairly democratic, where there's either 
direct democracy, at least for part of the government, or a representative democracy for part of the government, but in which the franchise is relatively widespread. However, only citizens are allowed to directly participate in politics, either through voting directly on measures or through voting for representatives to in turn vote on, you know, potential laws and things. And in a classical republic, citizenship is not defined super broadly. It's not defined anywhere near as widely and broadly as it is in most modern democratic republics. So it's not as simple as you live there and you're a citizen, or even you were born there and you're a citizen, not necessarily. Citizenship, usually in a classical republic, is defined by multiple factors. And so, usually birth and ancestry is at least part of the equation. Usually, you've got to, you know, be descended from people who were citizens. But in addition to that, there is often some sort of a property requirement. There might be something along the lines of having an independent livelihood of some sort. So, in ancient and medieval times, of course, this would primarily be farmers, especially, you know, yeoman farmers, small to medium farmers who own their own land. But there might also be, particularly in the Renaissance era and into the kind of, you know, colonial and revolutionary American period, there might also be people qualified as citizens who are self-employed artisans or small business owners, things like that. But the idea is that you want your citizenry to have some sort of independent livelihood and or own a certain amount of property. And the thinking is that somebody like that has a stake in society and a stake in the system in a way that a dirt poor person who's just like a proletarian, you know, day laborer doesn't really have a stake in society. And so perhaps shouldn't be trusted with something as potentially dangerous as political power, even to the extent of voting. There might also be a requirement for you to pay a certain amount of taxes per year to be a full citizen, that sort of thing. So the idea is you don't just get citizenship for showing up. There's like certain things you have to do, criteria you have to meet. And pretty much universally, as far as I've seen in classical republics in theory and in practice, is that part of what earns you your citizenship is service in the militia. And a big part of classical republicanism is the idea that a citizen militia composed of citizen soldiers is the form of military that's most compatible with the type of freedom that classical republics aim at. And this evolved, again, during that hoplite revolution in ancient Greece. So, partly it depends on there being effective personal weaponry and military gear that are both legally available and financially affordable to most citizens. And then, typically, in a classical republic, the citizens own and provide their own weaponry and military equipment. And so, you have to have at least enough wealth to buy the basic whatever the panoply is in the time and place that you're living. And so, in ancient Greece, you know, that would be uh, the Greek bronze armor and uh, the hoplon shield and the long spear, things like that. And so, you know, a dirt poor person can't afford that. 
so you have to be at least middle class enough to afford the basic military gear. And then in a classical republic, the citizen owns it, he keeps it in his house, his military kit is his. And not just owning that, but serving in war to defend the city are important parts of being able to qualify for full citizenship, including having a say in the government. Because again, as with owning property or having an independent livelihood, the idea is you have a stake in the society and the system. Up to and including literally risking your life to help defend it in the event of war with some you know, neighboring polis or empire or whatever. Now, obviously, this is very different from modern democracies and modern so-called democratic republics. Because, of course, modern republics are usually geographically and in terms of population much larger than the types of things that, you know, the ancient Greeks were thinking about or that early Romans were dealing with or even what Renaissance Italian states were. So, in a modern republic, the influence of each individual citizen is diluted into virtually zero, unless you're a billionaire, right? If you're in a place where there's only 20,000 citizens who can vote and have a say in the government, well, then your vote, you know, it's not statistically huge, but it's way more of a real thing than your vote in a place where there's 100 million people who are qualified as citizens and able to vote, right? If you're one of 20,000, that's a bigger deal than if you're one of 100 million. Also, in a modern republic, which tends to be, by comparison, huge in size and population, that means that people's genuine kind of natural organic patriotism, which, when it's not perverted and propagandized into being something dark and dangerous, tends to be very localistic. So, in a modern republic or modern democracy, this natural, almost kind of like hobbit affinity for your local shire isn't sufficient to really make you loyal to the Republic. And so you have to have all this propaganda and compulsion and whatever. Without being coerced and propagandized, I could develop a real affinity for and feeling of loyalty to my little area of North Florida. But I'm not going to have a genuine, organic loyalty to an affinity for the United States, just on left to my own devices. I have to be propagandized almost from birth to think that somehow Seattle, Washington is part of my country too, or Boston, Massachusetts, or San Diego, California, or Anchorage, Alaska, like this is all part of quote-unquote my country. That's not something human beings naturally do, unless they're propagandized and coerced. And for sure, natural, organic, localist patriotism might compel you to be willing to risk your life to defend your kind of local home and hearth and actual community from invasion or attack, but... That kind of healthy, organic patriotism is not going to make you want to travel to the other side of the planet and kill foreigners on their home turf. Nationalism might. But nationalism, of course, requires massive amounts of propaganda and usually at least a little bit of coercion, too. Again, in modern democracies, citizenship and the franchise are virtually universal. And again, this dilutes the influence of each individual citizen's say in the system, and it also downgrades the value of citizenship to virtually zero. Because if citizenship is something you just automatically get 
just for showing up and having a pulse, then most people aren't really going to value it. And as a result, they don't take it seriously and they don't really think about potential responsibilities of that. And so, for example, you're less likely to take really seriously and personally any trespasses against your constitutional rights. In other words, if citizenship is something that not everybody automatically gets and that you really have to, at least to some degree, earn, well, then when the government is threatening to trespass against what are traditionally your rights as a citizen of this republic, you're going to take it personally and you're going to really care. Whereas if you got citizenship by just having a pulse on a particular piece of dirt, well, then when your government is threatening to trespass on your constitutional rights if they've, as they've been traditionally defined, you're less likely to really care. You don't have that, again, that sense of stake. I think if you really had to earn your citizenship, you're more likely to value it. And one of the positives of that is you might be way more touchy and defensive in regards to attempts by people to potentially transgress on the rights and privileges that citizenship is supposed to include. Another big difference is that modern democracies always are accompanied by a massive, powerful, permanent bureaucracy that is insulated in large part or even entirely from actual elections. So this is what Woodrow Wilson called the administrative state, and this is what some today would call the deep state, especially when they're referring to specifically the military and intelligence bureaucracies. Classical republics, by contrast, usually had pretty lean and limited and sometimes pretty minimalistic bureaucracies, and they were much less likely to have those bureaucracies, even if they have a little bit of it, they're less likely to have those completely firewalled off from elections. And thus, you tend not to get the sorts of massive permanent bureaucracies that just sort of keep on doing whatever they want to do regardless of the preferences of citizens and voters that you get with modern republics. And then obviously another huge difference is that modern democracies, modern republics, tend to produce large, permanent, professional standing armies rather than citizen-soldier militia-based militaries. And no, the American quote-unquote National Guard isn't really a militia, at least in the classical sense of the word, for a number of reasons. But a couple of those reasons are things like National Guardsmen do not provide and own their own weaponry and gear, and service in the National Guard is not a prerequisite for citizenship and voting rights. Whereas in a classical republic genuine militia, those two things would be the other way around. You would own and provide your own weapons and gear, and service in the militia would be part of what qualifies you as a citizen. So anyway, this is a sketch, an overview, an introduction, a primer, whatever you want to call it, and I'm not saying I am totally on board with every aspect of classical republicanism, and that's why I'm calling this episode Two Cheers for Classical Republicanism, not Three. That said, I think there's a lot to admire about it in both theory and practice, and I hope that when in the future I return to this subject with a lot more detail, that you'll see why. 
but I hope it's given you at least something to think about. You know, there's a number of different schools amongst libertarian and libertarian-adjacent types that are pointing to monarchy as a potential solution. That if we can't have Ancapistan in our lifetimes, maybe a better alternative to modern democracy is a monarchy. And of course, you know, there's people who are followers of Hans Hermann Hoppe's Democracy, The God That Fails, which is a book I need to reread. I read it for the first time probably 15 years ago. And I had mixed feelings about it. I think most of his criticisms of modern democracy are dead on. But I've got issues with certain aspects, at least, of his, you know, I know he's not really making a pro-monarchy argument. He's making kind of a lesser of evils argument with monarchy. Uh, but even so, I, I think there's, there's some problems with the pro-monarchist view in both theory and practice. But I wouldn't want to take a strong stand unless and until I went back and really reread that thing and thought about it. And I'm not ready to do that quite just yet, because I've got too many other things in the works right now. And then I know there's also the whole, you know, Mencius Molebug kind of crowd, the neo-reactionaries who, like, in some ways are even a little bit more off-putting to me than the Hoppians. Because they're explicitly making, like, a Hobbesian, not a Hoppian, but a Hobbesian, Thomas Hobbesian case, at least some of them are that I've heard, for, like, genuine absolute monarchy. And I don't think that's a great solution to you know, obviously, modern democracy, modern republics are really screwed up and are threatening to throw us into a new dark age, maybe start World War III, all kinds of stuff. So I'm totally on board with the idea that modern democracy, modern republics have some really severe and dangerous flaws that most Western thought for the past 200 years has just been, you know, willingly turning a blind eye towards and pretending don't exist. But in my view, at least, classical republicanism potentially offers more to someone with libertarian tendencies and instincts. And yeah, a classical republic is not Ancapistan. But a modernized version of a classical republic that fixes some of the problems and, you know, aspects of classical republics that would not be kosher today. Like, you know, obviously ancient Greece and Rome had slavery. And I'm not saying let's bring that back. But nonetheless, I would argue that there's some interesting things to learn, especially if you're someone who, you know, understands we're not going to go to Ancapistan tomorrow, but that, for example, if the United States really is an empire in serious decline and maybe in danger of falling in the somewhat relatively near future, that the decentralist idea of compact political units might be, in the medium term, the best realistic alternative to replace the empire. And if that's the case, then I at least would rather live in, you know, a left... If, if the U.S. broke up into a whole bunch of little, you know, polities, say in the next few decades, I'd rather live in one that was along the lines of a classical republic than one that was something else, than one that was a monarchy, or than one that was a tyranny, or an oligarchy, or whatever like that, or heaven forbid, some sort of communist polis, that out of all the kind of historical and political science theoretical options, 
something like a modernized, improved form of a classical republic might be my preference out of the available options. So anyway, I hope that gives you all something to think about and something to hear from me while I continue to labor away at the next Wilson episode. And again, this whole idea of classical republicanism is something I will eventually return to, just not anytime real soon. But thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.